Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. It feels a little weird today to be sitting in my little podcast bay behind my Yeti Blue microphone recording a new installment of Far-Fetched because it's been a while. It's been two and a half months. Um... And it feels a little strange to be coming back to this. I wasn't really sure what the timetable was going to be, but here's what happened briefly. About two and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer, something called follicular lymphoma. Ever since then, I've been on one form of chemotherapy or another, uh, different dosages, different timetables, but always with the chemotherapy. Well, we thought we had things pretty much under control until last summer when my oncologist noticed that there was some... There was some pesky soft tissue that wasn't going away that was really kind of a worry. So she started talking to me about a very scary procedure called a bone marrow transplant. And I got to tell you, every time she brought up the idea of a bone marrow transplant, I would be like, ah, no, thank you. That sounds terrifying. I absolutely do not want to do that. But over time, my oncologist convinced me that the bone marrow transplant was actually my best bet. Uh, for finally getting rid of uh, the cancer. So that started a very long, several month long process. Um, And it turned out that the name, the terminology bone marrow transplant was a little inaccurate. The reason the terms freaked me out was because I always just imagined somebody drilling into my bones, sucking out my bone marrow. Did not sound like fun, did not sound very comfortable. Well, it turned out that's kind of a misnomer. What they actually do is this. And it may, this may sound even worse to you. I don't know. It kind of is. So what they do is this. So for a couple of weeks, they, they artificially boost my production of white blood cells. The white blood cells, of course, um, are uh, what makes your, your immune system work. So we go through and boost my production of white blood cells for a while. And then when the white blood cell count reaches the target, then they hook me up to a machine that actually pumps blood out of me and pumps it through the machine. The machine actually collects all of the surplus white blood cells, and then the blood is pumped back into me. This is basically, I'm giving myself a blood donation. It's called autologous transfusion. So the blood comes in. The machine sucks out the white blood cells. The blood goes back into me. Um, I got kind of lucky here because sometimes this process can take a long time. It can take several days, maybe a week. Uh, I was done in one day. They collected enough white blood cells in one day for us to go ahead with the procedure. So they put those white blood cells in a freezer. And then the fun begins. Then they start giving me the what my oncologist described as the most potent dose of chemotherapy that your body can withstand. So for about a week, I go into the clinic every day and they pump a new poison into me. And it's, it's pretty weird. You just try not to think about what's going on in your body. I wasn't in pain or really uncomfortable or anything, but there was just this constant awareness that your, your body is full of poison and it's killing all sorts of shit inside you. But that all went as planned, and then once that, once that chemotherapy routine, which lasts about a week, once they're done with that, 
it's the big day, it's transplant day, which means that they're gonna take those white blood cells out of the freezer, they're gonna thaw them out, and they're gonna put them back inside my body. Why? Because that chemotherapy is so potent that it wipes out good stuff as well as bad stuff. So not only did it wipe out my cancer, it also completely wiped out my immune system, including every vaccination I've ever received in my life, everything from polio to the mumps all the way up to COVID-19. And yes, I was vaccinated for COVID-19. But for now, that's irrelevant because all of those vaccinations are gone because of that chemotherapy. So they put, they thaw out the white blood cells, they put them back in me, and that's, they kept referring to that as my birthday. I've been reborn on that day, transplant day. That was December 6th. And then you're basically waiting to see what happens. You're basically waiting to see if those white blood cells that, that, that they got out of the freezer, that they took out of me several weeks earlier, they're waiting to see if those white blood cells will kickstart my immune system. And if they do, great. Everything's, everything's looking good going forward. If they don't, then I'm really in deep, deep shit because basically I've run out of options at that point. I'm happy to say my immune system has come back beautifully. My doctors are very, very happy with the progress I've been making. The big surprise for me was coming into this thing, I knew that there would be a lot of just sitting around, especially after I got the transfusion, after I had my, my rebirth day. Because basically I had to go into the clinic every day for about six hours and they would pump me full of saline solution. They'd give me blood if I needed it. They'd give me platelets if I needed it. They'd give me antibiotics if I needed it. And they kept warning me, look, Mark, be prepared. Virtually everyone being, gets admitted to the hospital at some point or another during this process. It just happens. So be prepared. You'll probably spend at least a night or two in the hospital. I'm happy to say that never happened. But all this downtime I thought I would have, I kept thinking, well, I'm just going to be sitting around with nothing to do. I will do some writing. I'll, I'll be really productive. Wrong. There's no way to be productive <laughs> when you're doing this. I don't know why. I mean, it doesn't sound like a whole lot is going on, but you just feel so fatigued and so unmotivated. This stuff that they've been doing to your body just really, really takes its toll. So... So I ended up just sort of missing about three months of my life. For the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking, okay, time to get back to the podcast. I'm anxious to do it. I kind of left the last episode with sort of a, uh, a cliffhanger. I was only halfway through talking about the Star Trek The Next Generation Writers and Directors Guide. Well, I want to continue that in this new episode. But in the midst of all this, something happened that I found uh, very inspiring. Out of the blue, I was, I was contacted a couple of weeks ago um, by the guys who do a podcast called The Seventh Rule. It's all about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And the show is put on by uh, none other than Sirach Lofton, the actor who played Jake Sisko in Deep Space Nine. And... Um, Sirach and his partner Ryan approached me a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, we're about to record an episode in which we talk about Who Mourns for Mourn, the episode you wrote. They said, we wonder if you'd like to be on the show to talk about the process of writing that script. And I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. I'm planning on starting up my podcast again, and here's this really wonderful invitation 
to be part of um, a pretty cool Star Trek-themed podcast. These guys really do a nice job. And, of course, because Sirach is friends with everyone in the cast, they have access to a lot of really interesting people associated with Deep Space Nine. So I was super psyched to be invited and thought, well, I'm going to time it so that I bring Farfetch'd back around the same time that my appearance on The Seventh Rule takes place. So that's where we're at right now. Six weeks later, no, more than six weeks later, two and a half months later, I'm, I'm back behind the microphone and ready to go. So as I said, the last episode I did, episode 16, so this was one of the first things I received from Paramount when I was invited in to pitch to the show. It's a manual that is about an inch thick, and it's got everything a writer and a director would ever possibly need to know about how to tell a story in the Star Trek style. Where I left off in the last episode was with the character profiles. I believe the last character I talked about was Gwynan, played by Whoopi Goldberg. Well, the very next page in the, in the uh, guide starts out saying script style. So here's where a writer like me really starts to really starts to pay attention. And here's what the guide says. Now, I will remind you that this guide was written by Gene Roddenberry. This version is for the third season. It says it was revised in August 1989. So we're going back a ways. But this is right uh, from Gene Roddenberry's fingertips to the keyboard to the paper here that I'm reading to you. Script style. We need a teaser and five acts. They're very definitive about that. Five is underlined. Five acts. The teaser can run as long as five pages if necessary, but should not be shorter than three. Each act should be approximately 10 to 11 script pages long. The total length of the first draft script should not be more than 58 pages. Because the style of the show is a fast-paced action drama, long rambling scenes are to be avoided. The actual running time of each episode will be 43 minutes. The tag. We've come across an interesting phenomenon. Having Captain Picard order the ship to warp out at the end of each episode puts our people in harm's way. Tune in next week. Our new optical effect shots of the Enterprise entering into warp speed last no more than a second or two overall. The ship appears to stretch like a rubber band, then snap forward and is gone from sight much too quickly to allow our composers to button off the end of the show with a proper music cue. We need to finish each show with a shot at the ship that lasts a lot longer than that. Star Trek uses the narrative device of the ship's log to provide necessary exposition for our stories. Captain's Log The Captain's Log is a voiceover supplement to the narrative of our story. Example Captain's Log, Stardate 43101.3. The Enterprise is in polar orbit around the fourth moon of a Jupiter-sized planet, etc., etc. Supplemental Logs. These can include medical log, science log, supplemental log, and personal log from any regular character. One purpose of the log entries is to move the story along rapidly and economically with a few words, sometimes doing the work of several scenes. It also allows our characters to annotate their personal responses and feelings about a situation as it is occurring. Log entries are always, always in all caps, log entries are always introduced with a start date. What is a start date? 
A star date is a five-digit number followed by a decimal point and one more digit. Example, 43254.7. The first two digits of the star date are always 4-3. The 4 stands for the 24th century. The 3 indicates third season. The additional three leading digits will progress unevenly during the course of the season from 000 to 999. The digit preceding the decimal point counts days, and the digit following the decimal point counts one-tenth of a day. I bet you didn't know that, did you? Uh, here we get to the meat and potatoes on page 32. The headline is Story Believability, and the subhead is Believability is Everything. It is the Essential Element. That's a pretty dramatic pronouncement, but it is not inaccurate. So Gene goes on to say... If you are in doubt about a scene, you can apply this simple test. Would I believe this if it were occurring today on the bridge of the battleship Missouri? Technology aside, if you wouldn't believe people interacting this way in the 20th century, then our audience probably won't believe it happening in the 24th. In other words, people especially must be believable. The crew members of the Enterprise are intelligent, witty, thoughtful, compassionate, caring human beings. They do have human faults and weaknesses, but not as many or as severe as in our time. They have been selected for this mission because of their ability to transcend their human failings. We should see in them the kind of people we aspire to be ourselves. Please remember that a major character in Star Trek has always been the Starship Enterprise and its mission. The ship is not just a vehicle. She's the touchstone by which all of our characters demonstrate who they are and what they're up to in the universe. Next page gives us a list of some typical missions. These are ideas that we, the writer can use as sort of a launch pad for their storytelling. So here we go. Some typical missions. Exploration. The pushing out of new boundaries of the frontier. Transporting important passengers. Diplomatic and trade missions. Patrolling along marked or disputed boundaries. Parentheses. Ferengi. Romulan. Mediation and negotiation. Responding to planetary emergencies. Responding to ships in distress. Routine visits to planets, colonies, space stations. Scientific missions. Defensive actions against threats to Federation planets. Military maneuvers. Testing of new equipment. Training missions. Serving as police-slash-security force where requested. Serving as goodwill ambassadors, showing the flag. Crisis control. And finally, terrorist slash hostage rescue. I think in the time I spent pitching stories to various Star Trek series, I have probably used every single one of the missions on that list. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of the writer's guide. The headline is, The Story, What Doesn't Work?, <laughs> we got one brief page of bullet points telling us what will work, and then we go into this pretty lengthy discussion of what doesn't work. Okay. One. First, do not bring a story that which does not principally involve our continuing characters. Yes, we do like to see interesting new characters, but only when used in addition to an interesting storyline centering on our Starship crew regulars. Two. We do not do stories about psi forces or mysterious psychic powers. 
No matter how fantastic the events in a story, the explanation must be extrapolated from a generally accepted science theory. We have accepted the telepathy of Counselor Deanna Troy because many reputable scientists acknowledge the possibility of such abilities. But you will note that we have limited Troy to reading only emotions. Number three of what doesn't work. We are not buying stories which cast our people and our vessel in the role of galaxy policemen. Then in parentheses, C Prime Directive, page one. Nor is our mission that of spreading 20th century Euro-American cultural values throughout the galaxy, Mr. Roddenberry continues. Stay true to the Prime Directive. We are not in the business of toppling cultures that we do not approve of. We are not, quote, space meddlers, unquote. Number four, we are not buying stories about the original Star Trek characters. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Chekhov, Scotty, and Sulu, or their descendants. As much as we love our original cast, they are our children after all, we want our audience's attention centered now on our new characters. Next on the What Doesn't Work hit parade, number five. We do not accept stories which are fantasy instead of science fiction. The difference between the two is profound, Despite the fact that both science fiction and fantasy can deal with unusual events, a science fiction story is based on an extrapolation of a generally accepted scientific fact or theory. Fantasy, which our format does not permit, need have no basis in reality. Number six, a closely related tip. We're not interested in swords and sorcery. Knights and princesses, stalwart yeomen and dragons are not science fiction for our purposes. Number seven, don't treat deep space as a local neighborhood. Too often, script ideas show characters bouncing from solar system to solar system, planet to planet, without the slightest comprehension of the distances involved or the technologies required to support such travel. Fine and even fun on Space Rangers, but not on Star Trek. Number eight, Star Trek is not melodrama. Melodrama is a writing style which does not require believable people. Believable people are at the heart of good Star Trek scripts. I love how brief that warning is. It's very funny. Number nine. Do not consider Klingons, Romulans, or the Ferengi the only villains in space. We are determined not to copy ourselves. If, as dramatists say, villains make the story, how about the other fascinating aliens to be found in a galaxy filled with billions of stars and planets? Number 10. Beware of spaceship battles. They cost enormous amounts of money and are not really as interesting as people conflicts. 11. Plots involving a whole civilization rarely work. What does work is to deal with specific characters from another culture and their interactions with our starship characters. 12. No mad scientists or stories in which technology is considered the villain. It doesn't make sense for a group of 24th century interstellar travelers whose lives depend on the successful workings of their technology to be Luddites. Well said, Mr. Roddenberry. Number 13, avoid storms in space. I don't know why this cracks me up. Gene goes on to say, it is best to seek expert technical advice before using or describing space storms. Such not only rarely happen, but also have nothing in common with Earth ocean storms. After that, we go into the actual guide to the USS Enterprise, NCC 1701-D. The fifth starship to carry the name Enterprise, 
twice the length of the original Starship and thus approximately eight times the interior volume. See cover illustration. She retains much of the same symmetry, which includes an engineering module with twin nacelles and, of course, a great saucer-shaped command module. However, it is now designed to be home, home in a very literal sense to something over 1,000 persons. Gone is the metallic sterility of the original ship, the reason being that the last century or so has seen a form of technological progress which 24th century poets call technology unchained, which means that things are smaller, faster, more powerful, and very much centered on improving the quality of life. The living and working areas of the Enterprise reflect our new emphasis on quality of life by having a lighter, brighter, and more comfortable feeling everywhere. The Starship's duty areas are no longer cluttered with the same profusion of gauges, instruments, and control buttons. Instead, not only the bridge but all other parts of the vessel feature black panels which, by touch, voice, or a wave of the hand over a sensor, will become information displays. If one wants to manipulate either that information or some Starship mechanism, touch buttons can be displayed at the same time. The Main Bridge. See illustration, page 4. Because of this Starship's level of automation, the bridge on the Enterprise looks very different from the one in the original series. Gone is the need for officers to report to work to what seems like a giant cockpit lined with rows of duty stations, studded with clusters of instrumentation and controls. Much the same kinds of things happen here, as in the old bridge, but with less emphasis on the mechanics of steering the Starship. It is a place where the Starship officers, with either aboard or away responsibilities, can meet, check out information, make plans, etc. Who actually drives the Enterprise? Now there's a good question. Who actually drives the Enterprise? The job of Starship Command and Control, Gene says, is handled by two bridge duty officers at positions known as Con and Ops. Con for Vessel Control and Navigation, and therefore it's spelled C-O-N-N, Control and Navigation, usually manned by Wesley Crusher about one-third of the time, or one of several optional actors, M or F. Ops, vessel operations, including engineering and life support. Position usually manned by data. Occasionally, the job will be handled by an optional M-slash-F actor. From the moment the starship's destination is selected and the journey begun, every detail of the voyage is guided and monitored by sophisticated 24th century sensor-computer combinations. Routine emergencies are sensed and analyzed, with countermeasures already underway long before human help is possible, or even desirable. Layout of the main bridge set. The command area of our main bridge is a semicircle of control seats where the captain and his next-in-command and advisors are located. Just ahead of this are two forward stations, ops and con positions. When either station is vacated by a regular character, it is promptly filled by supernumerary officers who will be referred to by the nicknames of these stations. The rear of the bridge has a raised semicircular area separated from the command area by a railing, which is also a set of control stations. This is the tactical console. At this position, Worf, plus any necessary assistance, are responsible for weaponry, defensive devices, shields, etc., plus ship's internal security. The rear wall of the bridge is an additional set of duty stations called aft consoles. These five stations represent functions which will also be ordinarily unsupervised unless called for by a story situation. From left to right, facing aft, these are 1. Science number 1. 
used by researchers, science officer, mission specialists, and the like. Two, science number two, additional console to allow researchers to interact with each other. Number three, mission operations, used to monitor the routine activities of away teams. Four, environment, monitors the ship's life support systems, including inertia control and artificial gravity. Five, engineering. This is a double-sized major bridge station which includes control of matter and antimatter engines. It is the center of Geordi's engineering functions when he is on the bridge. It is capable of more than the other aft consoles. No one ever sits here except Geordi. On the stage left side of the bridge are two turbo lifts and a door leading to the captain's ready room. On the right side of the bridge is a door leading to the bridge head and washroom. Main viewer. The forward part of the main bridge is a large wall-sized viewer. This main viewer is usually on and will dominate the bridge in the action as the original framed view screen could never do. Observation lounge. Just behind the main bridge is a large conference room lined with huge windows facing forward and giving a spectacular view. Captain's ready room. On the left side of the main bridge facing forward is a door leading to the captain's ready room. It contains the captain's private head and washroom. The ready room is intended as a private office for the captain, offering both a confidential and convenient place to work and rest. But it serves a second and equally important dramatic function. It can be used for personal and private conversations. Community and family life. This starship is much more fully a home away from home than any of the earlier enterprises. As humanity probes deeper and deeper into space with missions 20 years or longer becoming the norm, Starfleet has begun encouraging crew members to share the space exploration adventure together as a family group and space community members. Most 24th century humans believe that life should be lived, not postponed. The previous decades of space exploration have underscored for humanity the old lesson that people need people for both mental and physical health, and Starfleet today encourages its people to participate in both family and community life, as well as other agreeable forms of human bonding. Although non-crew spouses and children are rarely seen in the command and other duty areas of the vessel, the sophistication of starships now includes all varieties of single and group family quarters, various levels of school and study facilities, entertainment, sports and other recreational forms, and contests, electronic and other, of a thousand kinds. Money no longer exists. Yay to that! There are whole new standards of value. The transporter can make almost anything one needs. The Starship Standing Sets This is important for a writer to know because if you want to do a low-budget model show, this is where you're going to tell your story. We begin with the Ten Forward Room. A dramatic set located on Deck Ten Forward where the star clusters of the Milky Way seem to be rushing in and under the huge window ports. It is also called Ten Four, a place. In the 20th century, it would have been called a bar and lounge and does serve similar purposes on our starship, except for the fact that the drug alcohol, and here they give the chemical composition of alcohol, C2H5OH, alcohol is no longer consumed by humans. However, the Ten Forward Room treats the same kinds of needs, i.e. a place to physically relax, conditions where judgment can be relaxed, where reality and dreams mix, where varied beliefs and performance are accepted rather than tested. One thing that helps make this possible in Ten Four is a substance called synthahol, which acts much like alcohol when consumed, but with effects that can be dismissed from one's consciousness at will. 
In 10-4, one often will see a glass lifted to the toast, To the Ferengi! Which acknowledges the fact that these troublesome aliens were the first to produce synthahol. This was largely due to the fact that the super-capitalistic little Ferengi are so fearful of being taken advantage of in business deals that they spent the enormous effort required to find an alcohol-like pleasure which could be shrugged off during bargaining. But 10-4 offers more than just that. It is not a duty station, but a place where the crew can interact with their friends and meet new ones. We will see non-uniformed people there, but these will usually be crew members rather than family members or passengers, who have similar facilities available. Another plus here on this deck is varieties of drink and food taken from the best in this entire quadrant of the galaxy. Now and then we'll see something being served that looks rather spectacular. The 10-4 room is presided over by Guinan, an unusual alien female, whose presence perfectly complements what 10-4 does for our starship crew. Next up, the holodeck. Developed during the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, the invention of the holodeck and the new Enterprise led to highly entertaining episodes. It also played a part in Star Trek The Next Generation winning the prestigious Peabody Award for Television Excellence, the first time that a new dramatic series has accomplished that. On first view, the holodeck appears to be simply a very large, empty set, until its computer magic happens. Then, depending on what has been programmed in, the holodeck becomes any setting that exists in the starship's vast library memory banks. For example, the holodeck in past episodes has included a snow trip to the Alps, Captain Picard playing a private eye in San Francisco the 1940s, Riker's encounter in New Orleans with an all-too-sexy, unreal-slash-real woman, and even a return by Captain Picard to Paris as it was when he was a young officer beginning Starfleet service. If the holodeck has a flaw, it may be that it is so rich in story possibilities that the Star Trek producers must limit its use to three or four times a season in order to keep the subject matter of episodes as broad and varied as the series format deserves. In the opening pilot episode, the holodeck created a parkland location. It included trees and bushes, large and small, a running stream, flowers, shaded glens, all of which looked and felt perfectly real. As a matter of fact, they were real. Every bit as real as our crew members are after having been beamed down from the starship to a planet location. Much the same process happened in creating the Parkland trees, for example. It is based on the science fact that matter and energy are interchangeable. In creating the Parkland, the pattern of a tree is supplied by the ship's memory banks. A person beamed down to a planet supplies his own pattern, of course. The necessary amount of energy is converted into the matter needed by the tree pattern. The result is a perfect living tree, as precise in every detail as a crew member who has been created out of pattern and energy by the starship's transporter device. True, it was obvious in the pilot episode's Parkland scene that there were distant trees and hills visible, which were far beyond what would be the limits of the holodeck set we had previously seen. But no problem, since it was then demonstrated that those more distant Parkland vistas were simply three-dimensional projections of the Parkland background done with the 24th century realism. The important thing was that the mood and feeling of the place was captured. Even in our 20th century, computer games are programmed to appear as real as possible, and no doubt every coming decade will see them improve in realism. More standing sets. Sick Bay. As in the original series, but vastly improved, a three-room complex including Dr. Crusher's office, a set of diagnostic beds with complete medical monitoring, and a state-of-the-art medical research facility. Corridors, again, as seen in the original series, but without the same battleship sterility. 
The new corridors are wider and more friendly looking, and as elsewhere will include vegetation. Utility Corridors Redress of the corridors to suggest that this is the major access to the ship's behind-the-walls machinery. Like the Jeffreys tubes, the utility corridors may be lined with light fiber cables and tubes to suggest the ship's internal nervous system and plumbing. And here we get to the Jeffreys tube, an angled rectangular shaft containing electrical conduits and light fiber cables. The Jeffreys tube is large enough for a human being to crawl through. Jeffreys tubes provide direct access to various parts of the ship's control mechanisms and computer monitoring systems. This area can be seen as a raised spine on the back of the ship's dorsal. Engine Room Our engine room contains a huge matter-antimatter blender. It is located near the base of the main module of the ship. Transporter Rooms There are several transporter rooms throughout the vessel. The one we will see the most frequently will be an updated version of the original transporter room, and as before, a transporter chief stands at a separate console opposite the transporter platform. Personal quarters. Each person on the Enterprise has personal quarters of his or her own. These quarters are much more spacious and livable than we've seen in the past. It is possible that one wall of the personal quarters may be a holographic window, much like the holodecks, and here for some reason, Gene Roddenberry adds in parentheses, pronounced hole-o-dex, H-O-L-E-O-D-E-C-K-S. Thanks, Gene. Each person's quarters will reflect his or her own background and tastes. This will be a standard set, redressed as necessary. Turbolift. The turbolifts allow our crew members to travel vertically and horizontally to any part of the Enterprise. The interior is a comfortable, relatively spacious cabin, 8 feet in diameter. To use the turbolift, a crew member simply enters the compartment and speaks his or her destination aloud. Example, sickbay or bridge. The ship's computer will instantly compute the most direct route and send the turbolift to the exit nearest the desired destination. Because the ship's computer is constantly monitoring the daily routines of our people, there will be many times when it will know exactly where to deliver the turbolift's passengers without their even having to say. But if it does need instructions, it will ask for them. Shuttlecraft The Enterprise shuttlecraft are 28 feet long, 18 feet wide, and 9 feet high. They are comfortable landing vehicles for travel between the ship and a planet when the transporter is not available or practical to use. The interior of the shuttle can seat eight passengers and two operators comfortably. The passenger seating would be removable to convert to a cargo or ambulance shuttle. They also have interplanetary capabilities, but at a speed of only warp one. Battle Bridge. In extreme emergency situations, the saucer section of the Enterprise detaches, saucer sep in parentheses, from the warp drive section of the ship in order to seek safety, enabling the captain and minimum crew to face the danger. Control of the warp section is maintained from the battle bridge, a much smaller auxiliary bridge as compared to the main bridge. Like the main bridge, there is a captain's ready room adjacent to the battle bridge. I could go on and on, and I will next time, because honestly there are still 20 pages left in the Star Trek The Next Generation Writer's Director's Guide. I kid you not, everything from definitions of different life forms to how different things in the ship work to how away teams are chosen, just an unbelievable amount of information still to read from uh, Gene Roddenberry's vivid imagination. 
So I hope you'll join me for that. In the meantime, please tune in to the 7th Rule podcast. The most recent episode, I was a guest, uh, guest uh, star, I guess. And uh, I talked a lot about the process of writing my favorite Deep Space Nine episode, Who Mourns for Mourn. So be sure to check that out. That's The Seventh Rule. T-H-E-7-T-H-R-U-L-E. Thanks for joining. If you liked what you heard, please uh, write up a good review for us on Apple Podcasts. And spread the word. Recommend us to your friends. Uh, I love talking about Star Trek, and I'm going to be doing a lot of that in the new year. So I hope you'll come along, and it should be a lot of fun. Until then, until next time, this has been Farfetched. Farfetched.